Hi guys, I hope you are having a wonderful day so far. My name is Bailey Sarian and today is Monday, which means it's murder, mystery, and makeup Monday. If you are new here, every Monday I sit down, I do my makeup and I talk about a true crime case that's been heavy on my noggin. It's a good time. Kind of, I mean, it's kind of sad, but. If you're interested in true crime and you like makeup, I would definitely suggest you hit that subscribe button. This week, wow, it's a doozy. Warning, the following presentation is intended for mature audiences. This contains graphic descriptions of crime scenes, adult dialogue, and extreme language. Viewer discretion is advised. So, me personally, I'm a curious cat. Meow. It's 3 a.m. one night and I was laying in bed and I was thinking, where does that fear come of the windowless white van? You know what I'm talking about? Those creeper vans, when you see them, you're like, that's a kidnapping van or like a killer van. You know what I'm saying? Like, where did that come from? Lawrence Bittaker. We're gonna start with him. Lawrence Bittaker was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on September 27th, 1940. His parents chose not to have children. So when Lawrence was, well, when Lawrence's mother was pregnant with Lawrence, it was a surprise. She didn't want kids. She made it very clear. When she found out she was pregnant, it was devastating for her. She's very upset. Lawrence's Mother got pregnant with Lawrence and then she gives birth to him, as one does. When Lawrence was born, his mother placed him, well, and his father, because they both didn't want kids. They placed him into an orphanage. Lawrence did end up getting adopted when he was just an infant. And Lawrence's um, adoptive father, he worked in the aviation industry, um, which required the family to move around the United States all throughout his childhood. So he really didn't know like what a stable home would look like. Lawrence at the age of 12 would have his first run-in with the law. He was arrested for shoplifting and then he would obtain a minor criminal record over the next four years. He continued to get arrested for the same, the same offense, petty theft, theft, theft in general. Lawrence, his excuse for these petty thefts and the thefts that he was committing had been attempts to compensate for the lack of love he received from his parents. That was his reasoning. In 1957, Lawrence and his family, they were living in California. It said that Lawrence had a really high IQ, but he really struggled in school and he decided to drop out of high school. Within a year of dropping out of high school, he had been arrested for car theft and a hit and run and evading arrest. For these offenses, he was imprisoned at the California Youth Authority where he remained until he was 18 years old. Once Lawrence was released, he went looking for his adoptive parents and realized that they had disowned him and relocated to another state. No idea where they went and sadly he never saw his adopted parents again. Pop quiz. Which previous murder mystery and makeup Monday killer was also staying at the California Youth Authority? A. Ed Gein, B. Catherine Knight, C. Edmund Kemper, or D. Gary Heidnick. Time's up. I doubt you remember, but I knew it sounded all too familiar. High IQ, California Youth Authority. Hmm, it's goddamn Edmund Kemper. Do you remember? But boy, I was like, what are the odds of that? Do you remember Ke Edmund Kemper? He was a big boy. He was like over six feet tall. Anyways, I mean, suspicious. 
What are the odds of that? So they were both staying at the California Youth Authority at the same time. No reports of them being BFFs or anything, but I thought that was a little odd. Like what a small world, I guess. Anyways, so that's a little bit about Lawrence's upbringing. Now we're gonna talk about Roy Norris. Now two are gonna become one, but they both have different upbringings, okay? So now we're moving on to Roy. I can't say his name. Roy. Okay, look, I have a really hard time with this R situation. So is it okay if I call him Norris? Was born in Greenlee, Colorado on February 5th, 1948. Anyways, Mr. Norris here. He was conceived out of wedlock. Now remember, this is 1948. Having a baby out of wedlock out of wedlock was heavily frowned upon. And with that being said, his parents decided to marry because well, they felt like that was the thing they had to do. Not a good thing. I know people still do that now to this day. Just remember, you don't have to. His father had worked in a scrapyard and his mother sadly was a drug addicted housewife. He grew up in his parents' home throughout his childhood and teenage years, but he was repeatedly placed in the care of foster families throughout the state of Colorado. Mr. Norris would say his upbringing was awful. His parents were verbally abusive towards him and would tell him he was not wanted. And then sadly, the foster families he lived with constantly would deny Roy of food or clothing. So there was a period when he was 16 that um, he was living at home with his parents and the family had visited the home of a lady relative who was in her early 20s and he began speaking to her in a very like sexually suggestive manner. Just something that freaked her out. I'm not sure exactly what was said to her but this is what she had reported. She ordered him to leave the house and informed Norris, Mr. Norris, his father, who threatened to subject him to a pretty hardcore beating. Norris here, he then stole his father's car and drove into the, the Rocky Mountains where he attempted to commit suicide by injecting pure air into an artery in his arm. He failed. He was later found by police and taken in as a runaway. And once he was returned to his parents' home, I mean, his dad beat him pretty badly. And then his parents had informed him that he and his younger sister were unwanted children and that they intended to divorce when both of the kids had reached 18. A year later, Norris dropped out of school and um, joined the United States Navy. He was stationed in San Diego in 1965 and then he was deployed to Vietnam in 1969. While he was deployed in Vietnam, that's where he like experimented with different drugs, um, like heroin mainly. He got an honorable discharge from the Navy after one tour of duty. Duty. So Lawrence, um, within days of his parole from the California Youth Authority, Lawrence was then arrested for transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines. Following that, he was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment to be served in Oklahoma State Reformatory. In 1960, Lawrence was released from prison and soon reverted to, to crime again because he seems like he can't stop. Within months of being released, he had been arrested in Los Angeles for robbery. And in May of 1961, was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment for the robbery. And then after serving three years, Lawrence was released. <laughs> Such a joke. And then in 1964, he was arrested again for a parole violation. And a year later, he was again released into society. Between 1967 and 1971, Lawrence is arrested a couple of times again 
for theft and robbery. He was sentenced to six months to 15 years imprisonment, but was released after serving just three years. I don't know if you've caught on, but Lawrence got a pretty lengthy record already. And then in 1974, look, I'm just laughing at how ridiculous this is. In 1974, Lawrence was arrested for assault with attempt to commit murder. You see what happened? He stabbed a young supermarket employee who had accused him of stealing. The supermarket employee had seen Lawrence stealing a steak and he followed Lawrence outside into the parking lot where he calmly asked Lawrence whether he had forgotten to pay for that steak he was holding. Lawrence stabbed them in the chest. Supposedly, he like barely missed his heart, but he stabs him in the chest and then he attempts to flee. And then he was quickly restrained by two other supermarket employees. Now the employee, luckily, thank God, um, had survived the stabbing. Lawrence was convicted of the lesser charge of assault with a deadly weapon. And he was sent to California's men's colony in San Luis Obispo. I'm getting tongue tied today. So in November of 1969, Roy, damn it. Why can't I be a normal person? Mr. Norris, Norris was arrested for his first known sexual offense. He was charged with both rape and assault with attempt to commit rape. February of 1970, Norris attempted to deceive a lone woman into allowing him to enter her home. And when the woman refused, he attempted to break into her house. And the woman called the police who then arrested Mr. Norris. And then in May of 1970, Norris on bail for his latest offense. He then went on to attack a lady student he had been stalking on the grounds of the San Diego State University campus. Norris repeatedly struck her on the back of her head with the rock until she slumped to her knees before he repeatedly beat her head against the sidewalk. Shortly thereafter, Norris was charged with assault with a deadly weapon. He committed to a total of five years imprisonment he was classified as a mentally disordered sex offender. And then <laughs> in I'm laughing because of how ridiculous this is, okay? Because in 1975, he was released with five years probation and he was declared by doctors as an individual who was of, quote, no further danger to others, end quote. And here's the kicker, the kicker. Just three months after his release, Norris approached a 27-year-old woman walking home from a restaurant in Redondo Beach, and he offered her a ride on his motorcycle. When she declined, Norris parked his motorcycle and grabbed the woman's scarf, twisted it around her neck, dragged her into a nearby bush, where he then proceeded to rape her. Now, the rape was reported, but they were unable to find... Norris. They couldn't find him. He was long gone by the time she reported it. However, a month later, the victim was out. She was like living her life and she sees, she spots Norris's motorcycle. And she's like, oh shit, that's his motorcycle. She writes down his license plate number and she immediately gave it to the police. Norris was arrested for the rape. And then one year later, he was tried and convicted for this offense. He was then sent to the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo. And while incarcerated at the California Men's Colony, Norris met and befriended Lawrence. 
Where two becomes one. Side note, because this pisses me off. Now you think this would be the end of the story, right? Because oh, so much shit has already happened between these two, right? You, you think this would be it. You think that would be the end of this story. Nay, nay, I say. Lawrence and Norris, his name is Rory, but I can't say it, okay? Lawrence and Norris, they're in the same prison together. So they become, you know, familiar with one another. Lawrence would say, you know, they were acquaintances at first. They knew of each other, they saw each other. I mean, they, Lawrence would say that they only began talking in friendly terms when Norris taught Lawrence how to make jewelry while in prison, you know, you get like arts and crafts time. Then Norris would say that they became really close when Lawrence saved him from being attacked by fellow inmates on at least two occasions. So after that, they became pretty close. And what do close friends do? They sit around and gossip with one another and like they tell each other secrets. And that's what they did. When they became friends, they started to like discover that they had common interests. Norris also confided in Lawrence that the thing that really turned him on, he's like, let me tell you, let me tell you girl. The thing that really turns me on, he loved seeing like the face of frightened young women. And then he added, this was the primary reason why he had such a lengthy sexual assault record. Which is weird because at this point when he was arrested, he didn't have a lengthy sexual assault record. So it, there's reason to believe that he's hiding a lot of shit he did. That was just like a side note, but like, okay. So then Lawrence uh, follows that and tells Norris that if he ever raped a woman, he would kill her. So, you know, he would not leave a witness to the crime. And like Norris was like, oh my God, wow, that's so cool. Wow, you're so cool. Now, when the two were alone, it's said that the pair often discussed plans to assault and murder teenage girls once they were freed. You see, they shared this fantasy, which then evolved into an elaborate plan to murder one girl of each teenage year. So from 13 all the way to 19, they wanted to find a girl of every age between then and murder them. Set better goals. The pair vowed to become reacquainted once they were released. Lawrence was released in October of 1978. He returned to Los Angeles where he found work as a mechanist. Mechanist, sorry, I'm having a hard time talking. Now he would earn about $1,000 a week, which is like a great amount of money, especially at this time, but he became friendly with a ton of people in his neighborhood and his place of work. And he earned a reputation as a generous and helpful individual who occasionally donated money to local charities. Um, reading about him, he seemed to do a lot of like public service and donating on his spare time. So it's strange, but okay, I, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of weird. Anyways, and then three months after Lawrence was released in January of 1979, Norris was released from prison and he moved into his mother's home in Redondo Beach. He soon found employment as an electrician in Compton. Shortly after his release, Norris received a letter from Lawrence asking if like he wanted to meet. And then in late February, the pair met 
at a hotel and they rekindled their plan to kidnap and rape girls. They shouldn't have even been released in the first place, but that's just a personal opinion, I guess. So in order for the pair to successfully kidnap girls, Lawrence decided they would need a van as opposed to like a normal car. So the two put their money together and they purchased a silver 1977 cargo. Shut the purchase a silver 1977 GMC cargo van. The vehicle was windowless on the sides and had a large passenger side sliding door. And according to Lawrence, when viewing this sliding door, he realized that he or Norris could quote, pull up to a teenage girl real close and not have to open the doors all the way. Lawrence and Norris would nickname this van, quote, Murder Mac, end quote. Lawrence and Norris, they um, constructed like a bed in the back of the van. Beneath the bed, they placed tools, like a toolbox. They also had clothes in there, and then they got um, like an ice cooler thing, and they filled it with beer and soft drinks. They would drive up and down Pacific Coast Highway. They would drive to the beach, and at this point, they just kind of like were testing it out, flirting with girls, they said, having a good time. So not long after they decided that they needed to give this van a go. They needed to try it. They needed to see, can they get a victim? Sadly, they do. I don't know the exact the date when they picked her up, but it, it was listed at like almost eight o'clock at night. Norris had spotted a 16 year old girl um, and she was just walking alone on the road. This girl's name was Lucinda and she was walking because she had just left ch uh, like a church meeting in Redondo Beach. She was walking down um, side street, walking home. Lawrence remembers Norris saying, quote, there's a cute little blonde. So they kind of pull up next to Lucin Lucinda and they ask her, hey, like, do you want, do you want a ride? We see that you're walking, it's getting late. We can give you a ride. And Lucinda de declines. She's like, hell no. So then they offer her weed and beer because they had that in their car. And she says no. So this kind of pisses them off. They're like, this isn't working. They pull up further down the road and they park alongside a driveway and they're waiting because they see Lucinda's like walking in that direction. Norris, then he exits the van and he opens the side um, sliding door and he pretends to like work in the van. He's like sticking out and pretending to kind of shuffle through things. But really they were just waiting for Lucinda to come walking up. As soon as Lucinda walks in their direction up towards the van, Norris says like, we don't know what he says to her. He's just says a few words to her, but then he drags her into the van and then slams the door shut. And he turns the radio up to like full volume to muffle any sounds. So Norris is in the back and he is bounding Lucinda's arms and legs and then gags her with duct tape as Lawrence drove to a road in the San Gabriel Mountains. Now it said when Lucinda was first like snatched, she was screaming as any of us would. She was screaming, but then she quickly regained composure. Lawrence wrote that Lucinda displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. That was a quote. 
end quote. So once they get to this road, Norris first was the one to rape Lucinda after instructing Lawrence to go take a walk and return in one hour. Once Lawrence returned to the van, he then asked Norris to leave while he raped Lucinda. So they just took turns. Now it's hard to know what happened exactly because Norris and Lawrence, they have given um, different accounts as to who actually like killed her, but it's said that they argued over whether they should kill her or they or if they should release her. I guess Norris is the one who tried to strangle Lucinda first. This is what Norris says. There was like a certain look in her eyes that made him physically sick. So he is trying to kill her. She's making this face that like really bothered him. So he said he ran to the front of the van and he threw up. So then Lawrence is like, well, get out of my way. I'll go do it. So he goes to Lucinda and he strangles her. She collapses to the ground. He then twists a wire coat hanger around her neck um, with pliers. And then he wrapped Lucinda's body in a plastic shower curtain. And then they both threw her her body over a steep canyon that Lawrence had selected. So Norris would say that Lawrence assured him that the animals would eat her up so there wouldn't be any evidence left. So then on July 8th, 1979, two weeks after the murder of Lucinda, Lawrence and Norris, they encountered an 18 year old Andrea Joy Hall. She was hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway. Now they see her, but they were kind of like behind another car. So they have full plans to pull over and pick her up, but the car in front of them pulls over and they offered Andrea a ride and she accepted. So she gets in this car that's in front of them and they drive off. So this pisses Lawrence and Norris off. So they decide to just follow the vehicle um, from a distance until Andrea had exited the vehicle in Redondo Beach. They pull over when Andrea had gotten out of the car and they offer her a soda or a beer. And she said, okay. She opens up the back of the van and that's when Norris pounced on her. It's said that Andrea really tried to fight back she tried her best but Norris was able to like twist her arm behind her back which then caused her to scream in pain Norris then gagged her with adhesive tape and then bound her wrist and her ankles Lawrence and Norris drove to lo the location in the San Gabriel Mountains where they had taken Lucinda sadly Andrea when they arrived there uh, she was raped twice by Lawrence and then Norris only raped her once Lawrence then forced Andrea to walk uphill naked alongside the road and then to perform oral sex on him before ordering Andrea to pose for several Polaroid pictures. And Norris decided to walk to a local gas station or something and to go buy alcohol. And then when he returned, Lawrence was already alone and he had two more Polaroid pictures that he had taken. Norris would say that it, it was just pictures of her face being described as sheer terror, but Norris didn't know where Lawrence had put her body or like what happened exactly. Lawrence had informed Norris that he had told Andrea he was going to kill her and challenged her to give him as many reasons as he could, as she could to come up with as to why she should be allowed to live before, sorry for this one, before thrusting um, an ice pick through her ear into her brain. And he did this to each ear 
Lawrence then strangled her before throwing her body off of a cliff. There's like no words for how disgusting these guys are. So then on September 3rd, Lawrence and Norris, they see two other girls who are named um, Jackie and Jacqueline. And they're sitting on like a bus stop bench located close to Hermosa Beach. Lawrence had offered the girls a ride. They said, sure, you know. Once they were in the van, Norris had offered them marijuana, which the girls accepted. Before anyone thinks marijuana is bad, because that's not what I'm trying to point out, they had it because they knew like it would bring people into the van. I just know people are gonna be like, marijuana's not why they did this. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that they had the marijuana, okay? <laughs> Shortly after the girls had entered the van, both of them had noticed Lawrence, who was driving the van, he had steered the van off of the Pacific Coast Highway, and he was driving in the direction of the San Gabriel Mountains. So Jacqueline, who was only 13 years old, she attempted to open up the van door, the sliding door, because she just had that gut feeling that this isn't good. While she's trying to get up and like open the sliding door, Norris hit her in the back of the head with a bag that was filled with lead weights. So he knocks her unconscious. Jackie, who was 15, the other girl in this car, she sees what's going on, obviously freaks out, and she tries to like run out of the van as well. And then Norris is able to like tackle her and hold her down. So then he tries to bind and gag Jackie, but at the same time, Jacqueline, the other girl who was knocked unconscious, she regains consciousness. And again, she tries to open up the van door and flee, which she does. She is able to get out like a couple steps out of the van, but Norris is on it and he grabs her. He twists her arm behind her back, drags her back into the van and the struggle just continues. So Lawrence, who's driving the car, sees like this struggle happening and he pulls the van over. He gets out of the van, he punches fucking Jacqueline in the face. And then he assists Norris binding and gagging the two girls. They then drive up to the San Gabriel Mountains where they had taken the other previous girls. They end up staying up there for almost two days. They pretty much are just holding the girls captive up there. And throughout the two days, they are raping the poor girls and then physically just abusing them as well. Both men end up sleeping in the van alongside both of the victims or the hostages with each of them taking turns working as like a lookout. Lawrence then walked Jacqueline like onto a nearby hill and he forces her to pose for pornographic image like pictures with his Polaroid before returning her to the van. Lawrence also asked Norris to take several Polaroid pictures of himself and Jackie, both nude and clothed. It's later said that they think he kind of forces Norris to take these Polaroid pictures. Just in case they ever get caught, he can also blame Norris. Cause so far all the pictures were just of Lawrence. So in the first of three instances in which Lawrence raped Jackie, he also created a tape recording of himself raping her, forcing them to pretend that she was his cousin and just recorded it on his tape recording. The tape recording itself of Jackie and her abuse, it was never found. And then after almost two days of being held hostage, Jackie and Jacqueline were murdered. Jacqueline was struck in each ear with an ice pick and then she was sadly strangled. The whole thing is sad. Ice pick is sad. 
She was then strangled to death, and then he forced Jacqueline out of the van. Upon exiting the sliding door, Norris struck her on the head with a sledgehammer. Lawrence then strangled Jacqueline until he believed she had died, and then Jacqueline ends up opening her eyes, which freaks Norris out. So he grabs his sledgehammer and just beats her pretty, he just beats, beats her, and then he strangles her to death. The bodies of Jackie and Jacqueline were thrown over an embankment into the hills. So then Lawrence and Norris, they abduct their final victim, who was 16-year-old Shirley. On October 31st, 1979, Shirley was abducted as she stood outside of a gas station and she was hitchhiking home from a Halloween party. It's believed that Shirley accepted the ride home from Lawrence and Norris because she recognized Lawrence. You see, Shirley worked as a um, a waitress at a restaurant and Lawrence would come in there all the time. And so she accepted this ride because she was like, oh, hey, yeah, I know him. Once inside of the van, again, they offer Shirley marijuana. She refused. So then Lawrence drove the van to a secluded street where Norris drew a knife, then bound and gagged Shirley. Lawrence then traded Norris places. So Norris then just kind of drives around aimlessly while Lawrence is in the back with Shirley. Lawrence decided to remove the tape that was holding Shirley, you know, down and whatnot. He proceeded to ugh, torment poor Shirley. I mean, he did with all of them, but it seems like with Shirley, he upped it up a notch put on his like tape recorder so he could record the whole thing. So he's slapping Shirley, he's mocking her when she's crying, beating her over and over again with his fists. And he is repeatedly shouting. This is according to like detectives and stuff who heard the voice recording. He's shouting at her to quote, say something, say something while he's beating and slapping her. I guess you can hear Shirley screaming and shouting and crying. Lawrence is shouting for her to quote, scream louder. So then Lawrence continues screaming at her to scream louder and you just hear Shirley screaming as any of us fucking would, you know, like shit. And then he grabs his pliers out of a toolbox that he had in the car. He then proceeds to rape her and sodomize her with the pliers. What the, this takes a certain level of sick. You can't describe this. You know, it's just like, it said that it was Lawrence's idea to turn on the voice recorder. When detectives are listening to the voice recorder, they hear like that Lawrence is going through the toolbox. Um, you, you just hear him like shuffling through it or you hear him like pulling out different tools and whatnot, kind of mumbling. And you hear her pleading with him, begging, for him to just let her go. So then Norris is the one who reaches for the sledgehammer. He then proceeds to strike Shirley 25 consecutive times. Norris ends up killing Shirley by strangling her with a wire coat hanger, which he tightened with the pliers. Now Lawrence is the one who comes up with this bright idea, discard her body on a random lawn in order to view the reaction from the press. He wanted that media attention. So the pair had drove around and then they randomly um, just selected a house and they discarded Shirley's body in or like on the front lawn. Shirley's body was found the next morning by a jogger Lawrence would say that the recording that he made of Shirley during her rape and torture, it offered nothing other than the evidence of a threesome. 
Adding that towards the end, Shirley was screaming for him and Norris to kill her, and that's why they did it. No words. In November of 1979, Norris, he became acquainted or reacquainted with a friend named Joseph Jackson. And Joseph Jackson was a dude was incarcerated with Norris. And they became like friendly and they talked and stuff. Norris um, had confided in this individual as to his and Lawrence's um, murders over the last five months. Uh, and he included really graphic details of the murder of Shirley. And at this point when he confided in this guy, Shirley was the only victim whose body had been found. And then Norris also told this Jackson guy that in addition to the five murders he and Lawrence had committed, there had been three additional incidents in which he and Lawrence had abducted or attempted to abduct young women who had either successfully escaped their attackers or in one instance had actually been raped but released. When this guy heard Norris's confession, he went to his attorney and was like, what do I do? You go to authorities, like, what do you mean, what do you do? But whatever, at least he went, okay? He confided or he consulted with his attorney and asked him, what do I do? And his attorney advised him to go to authorities. So this guy agreed and, and he and his attorney went to the LAPD, a Redondo Beach detective, and his name was Paul, was assigned to investigate Jackson's claims. The detective initially noted that Jackson's statements as to Norris's confessions did match reports on file of several teenage girls who had been reported missing over the previous five months. In addition, the incident Norris had confided to Jackson, where he claimed he and Lawrence had sprayed mace in the face of a woman, and this lady, she had been dragged into the van and then raped by both men. And this lady had matched a report that was filed in relation to an incident which occurred on September 30th. And in this file report, a young woman named Robin, Robin said that she had mace sprayed in her face before being dragged into a van and then raped by two Caucasian men in their mid thirties. And then she luckily was released. We don't know why, but she was. Thank God for her, you know, like lucky. This Robin lady, she did report the abduction and the rape to police, but they had been unable to identify the two men that she had mentioned. But this Jackson guy who had been talking to Norris Norris told this Jackson guy about the Robin girl. So they were like, okay, if this Robin girl can say that Norris is the one that got her and whatever, like identify them, then we could have like a lead or whatever, right? So investigators go out to Robin who is now living in Oregon and they show her a series of mugshots. Without hesitation, Robin is able to identify two photos presented to her as those of the men who had kidnapped and raped her on September 30th, um, Norris and Lawrence. So once they got this positive ID, police placed Norris, I almost said Roy, Roy, his name is Roy, but we're calling him Norris, remember? Under surveillance, okay? So he's under surveillance. And within days of being under surveillance, they 
observed him dealing drugs. On November 20th, 1979, Norris was arrested by the Hermosa Beach police for parole violation for dealing drugs. That's where how they got him. The same day, Lawrence, he was staying and like living at a Burbank motel. He was then arrested for the rape of Robin. Now, when they brought in Lawrence and Norris, they also brought in Robin to again, ID them in person and say like, you know, line them up and say, yes, that's them. Now, when they lined them up, Robin couldn't 100% say, yes, that's them. You know what I'm saying? Like they looked a little bit different than the images she saw earlier. So she said, I'm not sure, I'm pretty positive, but I can't 100% say so. Police were a little irritated by this, but they still arrested them because they had violated their parole. Lawrence, the one who was at the hotel, he had drugs on him, so they got him that way. Thank God, you know? So then, cause there's more bitch, there's more. Police search Lawrence's hotel. And while they're searching, they find a bunch of Polaroid pictures. And on these Polaroid pictures, they see Andrea and Jackie. Remember the previous victims we had talked about? But they find pictures of them and both of them had been reported missing. So when they see these pictures, they're like, bingo. Got him. And then inside the van, investigators discovered a sledgehammer, a plastic bag that was filled with lead weights, a book detailing how to locate police radio frequencies, um, a jar of Vaseline, two necklaces, which were later confirmed to uh, belong to two of the victims. And then they found a tape recording of a young woman in obvious distress. She was screaming, she was pleading for mercy while being tortured and sexually abused. Sadly, the mother of Shirley, the last victim we talked about, they played the voice recording to her mom and she was able to identify the voice um, on the tape as being that of her, her daughter. I mean, how awful to play that tape for her. I, I don't know. That's, I mean, yeah. They also found in Lawrence's motel seven bottles of various acidic materials. And later investigators would discover that Lawrence planned to use these acidic materials upon their next victim. Inside Norris's apartment, police discover a bracelet that he had taken from Shirley. Also, they found um, at the homes of both Lawrence and Norris, a bunch of Polaroid pictures. There were almost 500 pictures of different teenage girls, young women, most of which had been apparently taken at Redondo Beach and at Burbank High School. He, they had taken pictures of these girls, I guess, like as potential victims. And most of these pictures had been taken without the girl's knowledge or consent. So then, October 30th, 1979, Norris attended a, a hearing in relation to the September 30th rape. By this stage, Norris was beginning to display visible signs of stress. You could tell that he was really over it, done, he was cracking, you know. Norris, he waves his Miranda rights before being questioned. So initially, Norris denies any involvement in the murders, rapes, or disappearances of these different women. However, when he was confronted with the evidence investigators had compiled, um, Norris began to confess, although he did attempt to put more of the blame on Lawrence, saying it was him, it was his idea, he did all the killing, I was just there. 
But Norris did confess to everything. He confessed to them driving around, to taking these girls, to sexually assaulting them, to killing them, to throwing over the San Gabriel Mountains. Like He was not holding back. He was telling them everything. Strangling them with wire coat hangers, taking an ice pick and driving it into their ears before being strangled. Telling them everything, which is honestly great, you know. Because most people would just fucking lie and they never get a straight answer. Uh, investigators questioning Norris asked, like, what were you going to do with those acids we found? And Norris said that they were intended for use upon the next victim they abducted. And the acts of torture that had been committed and was going to be committed against their victims were, quote, for fun, end quote. All right. You nasties. Police investigators, they do a press conference and they go over everything that they have found with these two guys. The sheriff also stated that police had also identified 19 of the women from the pictures as being individuals who had been reported missing and not found and that these teenage girls and young women may have been murdered, but they had no evidence to suggest that these additional 19 women that were photographed had been victims of Lawrence and Norris, and neither did them confess to it, which is... <sighs> Norris then brings detectives to the area where he and Lawrence had disposed of the victims' bodies. They did extensive searches of the areas where he stated the bodies of Lucinda and Andrea had been discarded, but their bodies were never found. On February 9th, 1980, the bodies of Jacqueline and Jackie were found at the bottom of a canyon, just like Norris had described two detectives, an ice pick was still lodged in the skull of Jackie. So they knew that Norris's confession and everything was correct. So then in February of 1980, Norris and Lawrence were formally charged with the murders of five girls. Lawrence was denied bail, whereas Norris, he had a bail and it was set at only $10,000. No idea, okay? Norris had accepted a plea bargain in which he would testify against Lawrence in return for the prosecution agreeing not to seek the death penalty against him, which they agreed. So March 18th, 1980, uh, Norris, R Roy, I'm sorry for calling him Norris the whole time, but he pleaded guilty to four counts of first degree murder, one count of second degree murder, two counts of rape, and one count of robbery. In May of 1980, Norris was sentenced to 45 years to life. April 24th, 1980, Lawrence, remember Lawrence? His dumbass wasn't saying anything. He had a total of 29 charges of kidnapping, rape, sodomy, and murder, in addition to various charges of criminal conspiracy and possession of a firearm. And then when he was asked how he wanted to plead, uh, Lawrence remained silent. He refused to answer any questions and he refused to just say anything. So the judge entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf. So then Lawrence's trial had taken place January 19th of 1981. And of course the star witness for the prosecution was Norris. So Norris goes over everything and says how he became friends 
with Lawrence, how the both of them came up with this plan to kidnap, rape, and kill teenage girls. And then he goes into great detail about what he did, his own role, Norris, and then everything that Lawrence had did and how Lawrence pressured Norris into killing people. And then sadly in court for Lawrence's trial, they played the 17 minute audio recording that the pair had made when they were killing Shirley. So on this tape, there was Shirley's abuse and torment and rape and everything and they played it, which a lot of people thought wasn't appropriate, but they fought hard saying that the court needs to hear how bad these guys are. Maybe like, a, not the whole 17 minutes, I don't know. Like that would just ruin, that could really um, ruin your life, you know? And there's no therapy set up for jury people. So Norris said that Lawrence had the audio tape and he would constantly play it over and over and over in their van. And that Lawrence considered the contents to be quote, real funny. There were more than 100 people present in this courtroom and they all heard that tape and many members of the jury cried. Some people walked out and like left because it was just too much. I don't blame them. It was also noted that Lawrence was laughing and smiling the entire time the recording was playing. So, you know, there's a special place in hell for these type of people. Uh, February 19th, 1981, the jury had deliberated for three days and they ended up find, finding Lawrence guilty of five counts of first degree murder, one charge of conspiracy to commit first degree murder, five charges of kidnapping, nine charges of rape, one charge of sodomy, and three charges of unlawful possession of a firearm. Lawrence was sentenced to death for the five counts of first degree murder, he showed no emotion as the verdict was delivered. Lawrence was formally sentenced to death and Lawrence of course appealed this decision and then it went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court upheld this decision that he be executed. A renewed execution date was scheduled for July 23rd, 1991, but Lawrence once again appealed the decision of the US Supreme Court that he be executed and he was granted a further stay of execution on July 9th, 1991. As of 2019, as of right now, it could, could change, but Lawrence remains incarcerated on death row at San Quentin State Prison. So he has even been killed yet he's still on death row why does it take so long like i don't know how i feel about death row sometimes but for this he needs to die um yep sorry people like that need to just get him out of here you don't even deserve to be in prison get free health care and food and stuff no nope and then of course, Lawrence was milking it and he gave several death row interviews. He loves it, you know? So yeah, get him out of here. To this date, he's never expressed any remorse for his crimes. He states the only remorse he feels is for the fact that he and Norris were arrested and it ruined his life. Ruined my life. I hate him. In my life, Roy Norris, he remains incarcerated at the Donovan State Prison. Since his conviction, he has repeatedly claimed the sole reason he participated in the murders was out of fear of Lawrence. Wah, wah, wah. You still fucking did it, bro. I hate, I hate these people. You still did it. Get the fuck out of here. Okay. 
So Norris was actually up for um, parole in 2009, but he declined to attend the parole hearing. So now he won't be up for parole for another 10 years. So then in 2019, he was up again. Like, bitch, he came this close to getting out. Maybe, we don't know, scary, but he was denied and he'll be up again for parole in 2029. So detective, Paul, now this is the chief investigator of the murders that were committed by Lawrence and Norris. Sadly, he committed suicide in December of 1987. He was only 39 years old. He wrote a 10 page suicide note. He specifically referred to the murders committed by Lawrence and Norris as haunting him. And he had this fear that they could be released from prison. He just couldn't take it anymore, I guess, which is awful. A lot of people want to know what happened to the audio tapes because they wanted to hear them. Like you guys are sick. Not you guys, but like when I was on the internet researching this, a lot of people were like, where are the tapes? I want to hear them. It's like, no, fuck you. <laughs> Sorry, I said it. No. But the tapes that they made um, torturing Shirley, it remains in possession of the FBI Academy and they actually use it to train and desensitize FBI agents to the raw reality of torture and murder, which is awful. So that is the story of Lawrence and Roy and how shitty they are. Oh, and I forgot to mention, some people call them the toolbox killers because they had a toolbox, not to be confused with the toy box that we already talked about, remember? Both disturbing, both just deserve to die. One of them already did, truth or consequences, dude is, the, the toy box dude is dead, thank God. This one was exhausting. So it's believed, this is where the fear of that scary like, rape van came into play that has been instilled into a lot of our heads for some odd reason. It's believed that this is where it came from. This took place, you know, in the 70s. But to this day, be safe out there. I feel like whenever I'm walking alone, one thing I like to do is yell out loud, I have a weapon because it lets people know not to attack me. But I feel like that's not the right thing to do because I could get arrested because that's illegal. But like, I'm always like, if it's late at night and I'm walking, okay, and I hear like a car coming, I'm always like, I have a fucking knife. That's what I do. I don't recommend that because what if it was a cop? Yeah. I want to start adding advice, but like, I don't know, dude. It's fucking scary. And don't even get me started on the comment section to like these interviews and stuff. You can look on YouTube and I'll link some down below of Lawrence or even Norris where they're sitting and they're talking about what they did. And the comment section is like, oh my God, he's my hero. <laughs> Get better idols. Jesus, take the damn wheel, will ya? Thank you for hanging out with me today. I'm sorry to put a damper on your day with this very heavy story. I'm gonna write him a letter in prison and be like, hey, you piece of shit, die. I'll let you know how it goes. Other than that, I hope that you have a really great day today. Oh, something just bit me. Make good choices, please. Please, please, please be safe out there. Seriously, be safe. Don't be dumb, make good decisions, get better idols, just be better. You can do it. I believe in you. Let me know your thoughts down below, who you want me to talk about next week, and I'll be seeing you guys later. Bye.